We know that throughout history, we've had epidemics that have changed the course of history and have really influenced everything from human settlement patterns to human behavior and so on. And we don't know what the end game is with COVID-19, but I think we'll be able to come up with new and innovative ways to go about our lives. Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Water podcast. You just heard Jonathan Mayer, Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology and Geography at the University of Washington, allude to the historical and present relationship between human geography and public health. Here, SVCMO Mariana Cantor lead this conversation about the role that data, technology, and geospatial information play in containing and understanding global health threats. Dr. Mayer, thank you so much for being here with us, and welcome to the Esri and the Science Aware podcast. I'm very pleased to be here. You are a professor emeritus of both epidemiology and geography, and you've held numerous positions in public health at the University of Washington. For decades, your research has examined the intersection of medicine and geography with a really incredibly prolific body of work. Can you explain to our listeners the significance of these two disciplines coming together? Absolutely. You know, actually, if you look at the history of epidemiology and and also the history of what used to be called medical geography, they really intersect and, and coincide, both of them citing Hippocrates as kind of the father of, of, of the fields with tremendous emphasis on the role of environment and habitat and so on and, and human health. They, they really are just different sides of the same coin. And, and I've kind of branched out into epidemiology more generally and infectious disease epidemiology. Most of my work until the last 10 years was in infectious diseases. And it was at that point that I also developed an interest in uh, chronic pain and the treatment of chronic pain. And so uh, I helped to pioneer pain epidemiology as a field. We don't usually think of, of pain as a disease unto itself. And acute pain isn't, it's a symptom. But when you get into chronic pain, which doesn't have any lesion that you can point to or any fracture that you can point to or something like that. It really becomes a disease of its own and an affliction of its own. And uh, it's probably the most prevalent public health problem in the world when you think about it and Mm. when you analyze it. So, you know, it just doesn't fit into a nice diagnostic category, but it's there. It's clear that geography has influence over infectious diseases, even to a layperson like myself. But how does geography affect the progression of pain-related and other diseases? You can understand it as, as being able to predict and describe areas that tend to have more of a problem regularly with chronic pain issues. In general, uh, lower socioeconomic status areas, areas that are higher in minority populations who incidentally don't get adequate pain treatment. Not that most of the population does, but they're particularly disadvantaged. And so any disease, any diagnosis that shows geographic variation, you know, immediately becomes part of the field. That's the case with pain as well as uh, with infectious disease or a number of the supposedly non-infectious diseases like cardiovascular disease, most cancers. Virtually every disease shows geographic variation. How do you see geography playing out 
in in the world as we experience it today? Well, you can't escape geography and the roles of geography, no matter whether you're talking about disciplinary geography as studied in universities and so on, or whether we're talking about geographical phenomenon that we as as members of society experience. I mean, I, I, I think if we take the former, there's a real resurgence of, of geography in, in many colleges and universities and a realization of the importance, the interest, the fascination uh, of geography. At, at Washington, our count of geography majors has never been higher. It's just been going up and up and up and up. And I think that reflects this growing kind of awareness. And you can see interest in geographic approaches from so many disciplines, ranging from botany to zoology to epidemiology and so on. But viewing geography as a phenomenon of our, of our lived experience in, in society, I think that we can't escape the effects of, of, of geography. We, we all live in specific environments. Those environments affect us. Even while some might say, well, geography is less important as we're seeing because we can work without being together in the same office. You know, in fact, uh, it's nonetheless geography that allows us to be further spread uh, and hopefully a, a relatively temporary period, but we are connected uh, as a result of technologies, uh, communications technologies and information technologies and so on that allow us to be on the one hand geographically more spread apart, but on the other hand functionally tied together, uh, overcoming some of the ties of just a distance-based geography. Maybe we're moving more from a distance-based geography as a kind of constraint to a mm -hmm. distance-based geography is something that allows us to be more liberated in a way. That's fascinating. You, you've also pioneered the type of scholarship that combines the fields of disease ecology and political ecology. So now we're introducing another factor. Could you explain you know, this and how culture, behavior, I guess, and other social factors affect disease outcomes in addition to geography? The political element comes in uh, I, I, I got very interested, for example, in development projects such as the construction of large dams and what happens to patterns of disease when large dams are constructed, sometimes for hydroelectric power to power the industries and uh, countries that are uh, recipients of those dams, such as Ghana, what happened there with the construction of the Akosambo Dam, or sometimes called the Volta River Dam, which was one of the largest dam projects ever constructed, was that uh, you had a, a huge lake forming upriver from the dam in an area that already had a lot of malaria and some other vector-borne diseases. And following the construction of the dam, which was economically beneficial for the whole country and for surrounding countries for hydroelectric power, uh, you had a tremendous increase in the prevalence, of several different types of malaria, of uh, what's called river blindness. And so, you know, you have basically a political and an economic decision that was being made that in fact influenced the ecology of the disease and increased the prevalence of the disease as an unintended consequence. When you apply the filters of disease and geography, which is your area of expertise, what are we learning about social equity? 
Well, there are tremendous social inequities in not only the distribution of disease and what kinds of populations get what kinds of diseases, but also access to health care. So most public health journals now have articles on, on racism, for example, as a public health problem, arguing that racism isn't just a kind of psychological or psychosocial process, but it, it's a process that has health implications that are very, very direct. And we can see that in terms of the concentration in minority populations of virtually every type of disease, including stress-related diseases, but infectious diseases as well, even proneness to infection because of less robust immune systems that seem to be partially compromised by constant stress and the stress of inequality. Um, we're even coming to understand that now on a molecular level about uh, exactly how that might work. I'm curious about the fact that your work is so multidisciplinary. I'm curious whether you see general acceleration or advancement of multi-domain disciplines, and if so, in what areas and why? And what tools do you use and what tools do other scientists use to help analyze these multidisciplinary problems? I do see an increase in, in multidisciplinary things that are happening, but I, I like to look at the whole field of systems biology, as it's called, as an example. For example, in order to understand disease, you look at the phenomenon of disease and the phenomenon of, of pathological disorders and groups, and to do that, you have to understand molecular biology, you have to understand computational biology, you have to understand a lot of different approaches in the general area of biology. And uh, so there are various systems biology institutes and so on, such as here in Seattle that have formed. And then you throw in the social as well, and uh, with that, the spatial. And I, I am seeing you know, quite a bit more of efforts along those particular lines. If you look at our own school of public health, just as a uh, kind of typical example of, of fine schools of public health around in the U.S. and elsewhere, uh, they integrate everything from climate science to social science to behavior to psychology Epidemiology, even in and of, of itself, has a, a big and growing subfield, which is called social epidemiology. So you have all of these things coming together. And I think a real growing realization that you can't understand problems of health and disease from only unidisciplinary points of view. Right. And I imagine that data is a big factor in, in deciphering this multidisciplinary landscape data definitely has, has had a big role to play in that in the sense that the data come from so many different, uh, different sources and different ways of pulling things together. So at, at University of Washington, we have, for example, the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, IHME, which is quoted all over the place for uh, the global burden of disease studies that uh, they've done beginning at the World Health Organization. And more recently, that you'll find them in the news for their predictions of COVID-19 mortality. 
So that institute has several hundred scientists from many, many different disciplines, ranging from biology to geography to epidemiology, and uh, and pulling together large data sets, big data. That's what's necessary. And that's kind of an institute that typifies to my mind the kind of thing that is going on and will increasingly go on. Speaking of coronavirus, we're in the midst of this pandemic, and you've spent much of your career studying the spread of infectious diseases. When COVID-19 reached the U.S., which, by the way, happened in Washington State, where you are, yeah. what was your you know, reaction? What were your thoughts and feelings? What were your predictions? I first became aware of COVID-19, or uh, you know, it was an unnamed pneumonia at the time, actually on December 31st, on the day that the, uh, the Chinese government issued its alert to the fact that something along those lines was going on in Wuhan. Then there was a case that was identified in the county just north of Seattle, and the individual had a very rocky hospital course, although we now know that it wasn't a, a severe hospital course to the extent that, that some people have. Uh, and then not long after that, we had the cluster of cases at the, uh, the nursing home in suburban Seattle on the other side of Lake Washington. And one of the things that came to my mind was, you know, this, this, this could be a, a coronavirus. There had been enough coronavirus cases from SARS uh, and MERS that had been described that, you know, it was kind of in the back of my mind as something that might be going on. And I immediately started thinking about the connections that that nursing home had with the community and the fact that uh, workers were coming in from the community and going home at night and visitors were coming in and going. And I thought, uh oh, I, you know, I sure hope that we don't have a lot of spread into the community, but I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that, that we might. And at that time, I didn't anticipate anything to the extent that we actually have. But, uh, you know, throughout January and early February, I was really very concerned about, uh, about this phenomenon. Are you more concerned or less concerned now? Well, I mean, on, on the one hand, I'm less afraid because the actual fear frequently surrounds unknown phenomena and, you know, fear of the unknown, and now we know it. And, but on the other hand, we know it as being a particularly difficult virus in the sense that it affects every single bodily organ system that there is. And we know how it spreads, but there may be some means of spread that we don't know yet. We know it spreads rapidly, like most respiratory viruses. And we've yet to have really effective treatment. And so it is a very scary prospect. And we know that throughout history, we've had epidemics that have changed the course of history and have really influenced everything from human settlement patterns to human behavior and so on. And we don't know what the end game is with COVID-19. Uh, it's completely up in the air right now. As I understand, there are thousands of viruses that we come into contact on a daily basis. Why do some viruses take hold and result in such massive disease spread? The most serious coronavirus diseases are ones that come from 
uh, the intersection of the human world and the non-human animal world. So for example, with, with SARS clearly implicated one of the bat species found in the area of China surrounding Hong Kong. And that's the case with coronavirus, this coronavirus with COVID-19 as well. I mean, there's, there's been no definitive host that's been found, but the molecular evidence is that it came from a certain bat species. And influenza, of course, also comes from human-animal interactions because of mixing grounds and swine and avian species and, and, and so on. People are coming into contact more with some of the wild animal species, along with deforestation and incursion of economic activities uh, into areas that previously were sparsely settled. And we have a much more interactive kind of world. That's uh, almost undoubtedly how HIV uh, made it into the human population as well. So it's our own behavior, clearly, that's uh, driving this acceleration, not unlike climate change. So right. what are some tools and methodologies that the public health should be using and are using to monitor these types of outbreaks to catch them earlier? Well, some of the most innovative are ones that the, the so-called echo health concept where surveillance takes place in animal populations with veterinarians and veterinary epidemiologists being very involved in it to try and detect circulation of, of new viruses in particular in animal species before they even have a chance to transfer to human species. And that's certainly one set of ideas and technologies and individuals doing this use GIS just to the same extent really that, uh, that we do in human epidemiology. So this whole mm -hmm. area of veterinary epidemiology, one health, ecosystem health, it's kind of different faces of the same coin are part of big moves that are underway. So they use GIS, geographic information systems, to monitor animal populations like we do human movement. Absolutely. Close to a decade ago, a graduate student of mine actually joined up with one of these groups and was doing this sort of thing in Uganda, actually looking for samples of virus and, and bacteria and other pathogens in ape feces samples that were found around one of the national parks. And turns out that that's a validated way of detecting uh, many different kinds of viruses. And other groups are actually bleeding animals that they, uh, that they capture or even doing autopsies on them and trying to detect early on potentially dangerous viruses that could transfer to humans. You, you, you mentioned that it's not clear what the outcome, what the end looks like. What is your prediction? Do we have to wait until an effective vaccine to really get back to quote unquote normal? Are there other methods that we can employ right now? How effective will the vaccine be and how soon? Just give us some expert you know, predictions. Sure. Here. So we don't know how effective the vaccines are going to be. You know, there are about 30 vaccines, plus or minus, in various stages of clinical testing right now. And, and uh, the most advanced, there are a couple that are in so-called phase three testing, where there are randomized controlled trials involving thousands 
uh, of people, but many vaccines and medications that look really great in phase two trials, and they just don't work out sometimes at all in phase three trials, and, and there have to be cancellations. I'd be very happy with vaccine efficacy of, of 60%, just because if you look at the, at, at the types of vaccines that are out, 60% is, is a very effective vaccine. Mm-hmm. Yet, you know, that's not 100%, it's not 90%. Uh, I mean, I'd be thrilled if it was 90% or 95% effective, but there's just no indication right now that the vaccines that are being considered will be that effective. So if we have a vaccine that's 60% or 70% effective, that's really going to help. And it's particularly going to help if there's also herd immunity from uh, being exposed to the virus. And we may well be able to get back to what we would consider normal with a 60 or 70% effective vaccine. In closing, I'd like to ask you, what are you most hopeful about in this difficult time? I have a pretty optimistic view of humans' abilities to adapt and to innovate. COVID-19 as a syndrome and SARS-CoV-2 are here to stay. They're not going to disappear from our population. But I think we'll be able to come up with new and innovative ways to go about our lives, be happy and lead satisfactory and, and, and quite reasonable lives. But I can't come up with any specific predictions at this point about how we're going to do that. The prevalence of depression looks like it's really gone up. I'm a little little concerned about this winter and seasonal affective disorder and so on. But humans are a very innovative species. Thank you so much, Dr. Mayer. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of War podcast, and thanks to Jonathan Mayer for explaining how global crises require a multidisciplinary approach rooted in geography and geospatial technology. To learn more about location intelligence and solutions for sustainability, visit esri.com.